Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Fugue for Thought, the podcast. I'm Alan, and I'm very, very excited about today's episode. And I know I say that probably with every episode, and it's true, because the conversations I have are uh, exciting, and it's not because of me, but it's because of people who know many things and have exciting experiences and passion to share with people. Back in July, this past summer, I did a series of articles about works from composers who would later be associated with the Darmstadt School. Um, and then we kind of did like a little bit of a, a forward, a precursor to that, where I talked a little bit about, we did some stuff from Debussy, from Webern, um, and then jumped on into things from Boulez and Nono and Stockhausen. Uh, but then in between those two schools, in between the Second Viennese School and the Darmstadt School after World War II, there's a composer who was kind of the bridge between these two groups. He was an educator, a composer, a conductor, who was a champion of the works of the Second Viennese School and played a huge part in bringing their work and their philosophy to the next generation of composers who ultimately ended up being the Darmstadt School, who ended up being people like uh, Boulez and Stockhausen and Nono. I didn't mention Messiaen. He was also part of that beginning of that little series. And people associate Messiaen with Boulez and the Darmstadt School, but the name that's often forgotten is René Leibovitz. Uh, he was infamously a teacher of Boulez for a short time, and they had a little falling out. But he's arguably a hugely pivotal person between these two schools, and largely as a composer, he has been forgotten. So I included a work of his in this series in July, uh, and in working to do so, I dug up what appears to be one of the only collections of recordings of Leibovitz music. He actually wrote quite a bit of music, um, and there are two discs in this little box set uh, that I ha will link to in the article that features uh, this podcast, uh, largely due to the hard work of one Walter Nussbaum. Uh, all the information about this I'll include in the article, but um, the piece that I ultimately decided to feature uh, from this two-disc set was a piece called Explanation of Metaphors. Um, and in looking through the liner notes and information about this recording, because there's very little about it online, I came across um, some of the names of the producers and the performer, one Julie Comparini, the performer, the vocalist for uh, explanation of metaphors. It's a piece for two pianos, harp, percussion, and vocalist. And it turns out that vocalist is one very friendly, very knowledgeable, very interesting Julie Comparini. So uh, we actually ended up exchanging emails over the summer. I got some wonderful help from her uh, and the producers about uh, some of this music got to see liner notes and all sorts of things, and it's a fantastic piece. But I was also interested in Miss Comparini's background. Um, as you will hear, she has all sorts of different experiences and this wonderful skill set that allows her to approach music in a very interesting way. And so I'm glad to have her today. Let's get on to the conversation. So I have with us Julie Comparini. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. It's very nice to be here. It's very nice to have you with us. And so um, I know your name from one individual track that I became very interested in. A couple over the summer, um, I was writing, I was starting to write about um, the Darmstadt School. And kind of before that, it's a gentleman named Rene Leibovitz. 
Yes, that was the piece, Explanation of Metaphors. And you performed the world premiere recording of that piece. It looks that way, yes. I, we, we did not find any other recording of this piece. We knew it had been performed, but uh, right. as far as we know, it had not been recorded. And so, yeah, how cool that was. And so I, was, I, I um, found the, it's in a, a two-disc, there's a box set, um, and that box set apparently holds, <laughs> like, all of the information about those works, because about, I understand about half of the recordings in that box were also world premiere recordings, right? Yes, quite a lot of them. And, and how is it then that, like, the scores were just hanging around and... and um, I honestly Someone had them? I don't know the answer to that question because it wasn't it wasn't my recording. That was the brainchild of Walter Nussbaum, who was the director of the the ensembles, Schola Heidelberg and Ensemble Aesthesis, and Mark Reichau, um, the pianist who also researched and you know not only performed on a lot of the pieces, but also did the research, also for explanation of metaphors, uh, did a lot of that research. So I don't, they, they found a score and they gave it to me to, to learn from. <laughs> That's kind of and all I know from my perspective. What a kind of uh, whew, a sigh of relief. Like, I mean, kind of my perception or how I imagine it is like that, that this music was like almost lost and now it's, it's been recorded. It's been kept for posterity. Um, but, but I understand also that you have a background that is, uh, or a professional background that is not music. That's true. I I grew up doing a lot of things. Um, as a kid, I did a lot of theater, community theater, like children's theater. Um, we just happened to live, I don't come from a theatrical or, or musical family. We just happened to live in places that had really good children's theaters. And I was good at memorizing things. I had a photographic memory when I was a kid. I don't really anymore, unfortunately, kind of faded with the years. But um but as a kid in community theater, that's very, very well appreciated <laughs> when a child still. can memorize things very quickly and easily. So I did a lot of theater and then I ended up doing a sort of pre-professional actors training because, you know, where we ended up, where I was for my teenage years, there was kind of really good like youth theaters and, and for people who really wanted to get into acting professionally. And I didn't end up doing that. But I went to college, um, I went to UC Berkeley, big university where you can yep. study a lot of different interesting things, which was, a, which was a very good thing. And I was taking some classes my first semester there and I took a linguistics class because I thought, oh, I like language and, and you know, I'm used to working with text a lot and that's interesting. And it was fascinating and I loved it. And then I heard one of the linguistics professors said, oh, you know, they're starting a new a new program, a new bachelor here in cognitive science, like neuroscience. Um, you know, maybe you'd be kind of interested in that and you can do a linguistics emphasis in this cognitive science because it's an interdisciplinary degree. And I thought that sounded fascinating because you had classes, you know, my specialty was linguistics, but you had classes in computer science, in artificial intelligence, uh, you know, psychology, sure. philosophy, uh, biology. And that really appealed to me, this kind of interdisciplinary approach. So I ended up being in the very first graduating class of cognitive science at UC Berkeley <laughs> in 1995. There were four of us. Um, wow. So it was a new thing. It was very exciting. And, and I really liked the linguistics emphasis. And I did a lot of music. I, I, you know, I had started singing as a teenager, like in high school choir, you know, kind of that kind of developed out of the acting. And I kept on singing and that 
went really well and I ended up doing a minor in music. And then I graduated with my wonderful new degree in cognitive science, one of four people in one of, <laughs> at the time, only two programs. I think the other one was at MIT. There were only two in the whole country. Wow. So there I was with my bachelor. And in 1995, you couldn't exactly go out with a bachelor in cognitive science and get a job. Sure. So, uh, so I moved to New York and decided to be a musician. So that was, uh, you know, kind of, kind of went down the musical track instead of the academic track in the end. Incredible. But I also, I would imagine that, 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 um, some of that professional background, things that you studied would come in handy in situations that you now find yourself as a, as a professional musician. Definitely. I mean, studying linguistics, really just understanding the structure of language is, useful well first of all for singing in in foreign language for learning foreign languages because of course you need to speak a lot of foreign languages if you're if you're going to sing um learning foreign languages being able to sing in languages that you don't actually speak you know in terms of new yeah. music okay Leibovitz the Leibovitz piece is, is normal it was in French and then he translated it into English but there are plenty of composers who write pieces in fantasy language you know languages that don't exist and just being able to kind of get an interpretation out of that to be able to pronounce languages to be able to um travel around and work with different ensembles that speak other languages obviously that was very useful for that it had to be and and you you mentioned like with with theater from a young age did did that help with like your nerves with kind of just being kind of growing up on stage and not really being psyched out by the thought of performance? Of course, of course. And, and things like memorization, you know, even if I don't really have the photographic memory anymore, um, I'm still good at memorizing things. I could do it quickly and just being used to being on stage. Of course, I still get nervous. Everybody does, but, but it right. did help to learn at a young age, how do you deal with nervousness? You know, what kind of techniques can you have? And of course, acting training is very good for, you know, singing in opera or, or singing in general. So Sure. Everything, everything helps somehow. Everything you learn, no, nothing that you learn is wasted in life. I think. Yeah. So. And what? So what a foundation then to to be uh, where you are now, and where are you now? <laughs> I'm in Bremen. I'm in Bremen in northern Germany, and I've been here for almost twenty years. Um, mm -hmm. You know, going back when I got out of when I got out of college, and I went to New York for a couple of years, and I worked as a singer, worked a lot of day jobs too, which you know you have to do in New York. Um, my, my biggest day job there was, um, in the office of an early music festival. Cause I was always interested in early music, particularly, you know, Baroque music or Renaissance medieval, not so much medieval, but, uh, but Baroque music. Um, and so I was really in the scene, but at the same time, I knew I was not going to get any better as a singer unless I really just had the time to learn and practice, uh, which you can't do in New York when you're working three day jobs and a church job and this and that all the time, <laughs> just to, just to pay the rent, right. which is, you know, New York reality. So I came out to Bremen where at the music conservatory here, there's a special program for early music. And I got my, you know, they call it Zusatz Diplom. It's like a master's uh, degree in early music singing specifically here. So that was really good just to get in kind of solid, professional training that I had not gotten with this, you know, kind of very well-rounded background, but, you know, just in terms of singing technique, I just really needed those few years to, to uh, perfect that and to just really get that, uh, get that solid. 
And did you find that from your kind of on-the-job training that some of those things you had just learned through that process, or was, was there a lot of new stuff in, in the more academic environment? Well, the, the funny thing is my academic environment was what I had from UC Berkeley. And I remember, I remember coming out here, actually, and thinking, oh, my God, this country is so backwards. Because I had, <laughs> I had, been, I had been at UC Berkeley. I was there from 1991 to 1995. And even at that time, they had a computer system for, you know, what classes you were enrolled in. It right. was all automated. It was all very, you know, very technological. And I came out here and I was like, you know, now I'm going to get my master's. When I came out here, it was like 1997. And they're like, well, here's a little booklet. Here's a little paper booklet. When you take a class, your teacher has to sign it at the end. And I thought, oh, okay. And they said, so, you know, make sure you don't lose the booklet. You know, and I went to the, I went to the music library, the university music library. I mean, not even like like, like conservatory music. I was the university music library, and they were like, "Oh, here's the card catalog, but it's kind of old." And here's you know the microfilm card catalog. It was like you don't have a computer catalog, and I kind of felt like, wow, like like the the, the music conservatory that I went to here. They have just implemented a computer enrollment system like two years ago. I've heard so oh, wow. so. My and, and academically it was like that too because my degree here in Bremen was really a music degree and music is really it's a practical degree you learn how to sing you learn techniques of course we had classes in counterpoint and, and music theory but um, it's not as academically rigorous as getting a bachelor's from UC Berkeley you know so sure. um, so in a way it was academically it was more relaxing to be here but it was really good to just focus on this technical practical aspect of, of the things I wanted to learn. And how much of that singing stuff had you not just picked up from your previous experience? Well, of course, I'd had singing lessons, but um, there's a difference between, you know, living in New York and working all these jobs and getting a singing lesson, you know, once in a while when you can fit it in and not being able to practice much and getting a two or three year degree where you really have nothing else to do all day than practice and learn and you really have the chance to just to just to just put in that time and effort that you need to do. So that that really made the difference. Just having the practice time and you know having a teacher and having a singing lesson every week and having harpsichord right. lessons every week and having lessons Ooh, in historical dance and having all of these things just um, just really regularly and, and really thoroughly. And and was there ever a, a time or a moment when you thought, what have I gotten myself into? In Bremen, no, I loved it. That's why I'm still here. I mean, oh no, or that, or from the standpoint of, of studying music, or any of the any of the kind of unexpected parts of the adventure. No, I was just always really happy that it worked. You know, when I got out of college, I thought, okay, I've got this real degree now. I got it. I got a degree in something real. My parents will be proud of me. So now <laughs> I'm going to go be a musician. And I said, I'll give myself ten years. Because, and if in 10 years I'm not happy with where I am or I haven't had you know, success, whatever my definition of success is, if I haven't gotten it, then I will, then I will go back and get my doctorate in neuroscience and do something, do something real with my life, get a real job. Um, sure. Although I have found out just on a side note that um, scientists in some ways have it even more difficult than musicians. So it kind of ask myself who, who has the real job is the paying is, job is an interesting philosophical question. But that aside, um, I thought I'll do it for 10 years. So and after 10 years, I was doing pretty well. So 
I don't know. I just felt lucky that uh, that everything worked out so well. Well, there's uh, certainly something to be said there for discipline as far as um, pursuits and, and, and all of that kind of stuff. That's awesome. So you mentioned photographic memory as, as a child, um, which that would have been really nice to have in, in many cases in my childhood. Um, but what is it like performing or, or singing in a language that you don't speak? How, how difficult is that to memorize? Well, you have to just, it's hard to explain. I feel like I have to, first of all, you have to really, of course, know what it means. You have to know what every, every word means. If it is a real language, we're not talking about new music, um, right. um, you know, invented language, talking about a real language. Like, I don't know, uh, the biblical songs from Dvorak in, in Czech, a language I don't speak a word of, but I've sung the pieces. So then you have to really know not just the translation of the whole piece, but you have to know really what every word means and what the function of the word is in the sentence so that you can express it, express it, but also sort of convince yourself that you are speaking the language, even though you aren't. Right. I guess that's the way I, I see it. I can't explain it better than that. I mean, in, in the moment when I'm singing, let's say the biblical songs, then I'm then I can speak Czech. I can't in real life, but <laughs> right. But in that moment, I know I know exactly what the word is, and I've and I've done the pronunciation for the Czech songs. For example, I found a, you know a Czech uh, colleague, and I just worked with her on the pronunciation that was really correct, and and um, you know that's that's the best way to um, to get your pronunciation good is to just work with someone who's a native speaker. Sure, and Czech is not easy for as far as pronunciation goes, as I understand. It's um no, there are a few sounds which are not easy. And, and consonant heavy, like lots of, you know, they need to like, yeah, buy a few more vowels. In other languages, like they have this thing is sort of like an R and a... Oh, like the sound in Dvorak. Yeah, that, that yeah like the sound of Dvorak, which is, you know, a combination of, of um, fricatives that don't exist in every language. But, you know... Interesting. Work. It's all it's all practice. It really is. It's just it's just practicing. And, and so so memorizing a text like that, could you pick up at some point? Like the the conductor says, we need to pick up from bar whatever. We need to pick up from whatever your line is. Can you recite it like now, beginning from any place, or is it like if you lose your place, you have to start from the beginning? No, I have to say about the photographic memory, it really did fade over the years. So when I was a kid, I could really just read something and then I would see it in my head and I could just read it off the page, you know, little poems or whatever I was doing in children's theater. Um, with time, I don't know if, uh, I don't know if my brain is full or something, <laughs> but that, that, that I can't do that anymore and I haven't been able to do that for years. But I still do, I still do think visually even if i'm thinking of music so if i memorize music in a way i see the text or i see the music in my imagination and kind of read from it but right. not to that not really like a photograph if someone says okay let's go from bar 37 well i don't necessarily know exactly what sure. bar 37 it doesn't it doesn't work quite that well but but it now at this point it's kind of the type of memory that I have is kind of a visual memory, even for musical things. Because there are plenty of people who, who have, a, have a really an audio memory. You know, they hear things in their imagination to right. remember them. And I'm, I'm more of a visual person and see things. Interesting. I'm, I'm, again, I'm sure that that must be very, uh, very useful. You know, it's so funny having listened. I listened today a few times to the um, 
the Leibovitz piece. And having listened over and over to that recording and hearing you perform it and now speaking with you, um, for, because I, I come from an English background with a, with a focus in foreign language and all of that, your diction and pronunciation is superb, not only just from the standpoint of, of performing the piece, but just in regular speech, so much more than like... Because I don't feel lazy about how I I speak the language, but but you can, you can tell. I think if someone maybe did not know what you did, you would they would guess that you were some kind of a professional. Maybe if they had this a similar background, um, does that come from? I mean, is that something you're constantly aware of in in speaking? I guess it's part of your job, really. Well, I've been training my singing voice for I don't know if you say I started seriously when I was. 15, you know, it's 25 years and more. So, uh, you know, at some point, I guess your speaking voice catches up to your singing voice and sure. uh, you can hear that. And I have my radio voice on now today. So, yes, um, right. No, that's because it's some things um, like I've heard. Yeah, I guess it's like you, like you mentioned the the radio voice or kind of the professional voice that this evening on you know whatever it is where that that person maybe doesn't doesn't actually talk that way in in um, civilian life, um, and so you mentioned early music. How yes. how early? Well, most of what I do is baroque music. Um, the program here where I did my masters in Bremen is from 1550 to 1750. So, you know, kind of late Renaissance through Baroque. I've done some medieval music, some wow. earlier Renaissance music. I'm, I have a sort of subspecialty in um, early notation because I'm really interested in, in musical notation. So, of course, there are lots of earlier systems of musical notation before the, the modern system that we use now. And there's a whole lot of music written, for example, in the 15th century, um, uh, French or Franco-Flemish music, which had a specific kind of menstrual notation. And I, I learned that and I teach that and I can sing from 15th century manuscripts. Yeah. Um, wow. A list of, list of talents that a person does not need in the modern business world, but, um, <laughs> but which I find fascinating. So, um, so I do some of that, but of course what you know what you learn in the classical music world and what you can do and maybe what you're good at um is not necessarily always what people are going to hire you to do a concert for sure and here in germany northern germany there's not a big scene for medieval or renaissance music there is a big scene for baroque music so right most of what i do is baroque music and and 17th, 18th century usually and and going going that far back like you said to to different forms of notation is is because this is something that i'm completely unfamiliar with is is there enough assurance that we that we know enough about that music that we can perform it and and come close to replicating what it would have sounded like that many centuries ago for, for the 15th century in terms of notation yes because notation is easy in the sense that um, if you don't interpret it right, the piece doesn't work, you know, then it doesn't right. work harmonically or rhythmically. And there were, in fact, lots of, um, lots of composers in the 15th century made kind of experimental pieces with different, um, with different mensurations happening in the same piece. So there's really only one way to make it work out. And there are lots and lots and lots of scholars 
who have you know researched that for many many years, and that's that's pretty clear. In terms of broader performance practice, like what kind of instruments were used, or did they even use instruments with vocal music, right. or what exactly did the instruments sound like, or where exactly was the music performed, or who exactly was performing <laughs> the music, like what was the cultural context? Of course, people, you know, we do know information about that, but that's something that musicologists um, do still argue about because that's, of course, the the less information that um, the less information that's in the notation or or that's in the kind of cultural context, the more possibilities there are. So sure, but I'm not a musicologist. I I, I like the notation and I sing the music, but uh, but I'm not a musicologist. So I'll let the I'll let the experts discuss the fine points of sure. performance practice in the 15th century. But it, I mean, medieval. What is that's that's well, a very long time ago. The, the farther back you go in in music history, the more of a scholar and the more of a musicologist you have to be to even perform the music. Like when you really real medieval music, right? The people who are performing that music, they're either musicologists or they're you know just as informed or more informed than. Then the musicologist, you you have to be, you have to be because um, to have because a otherwise you just have a piece of paper with some squiggles on it, and you don't, sure. and you wouldn't even know where to start. But that's that's why I'm not a medieval specialist because that's a whole different world. That's really a scholarly world, um, and the amount of the amount of scholarly work you have to do to even make the music happen is uh, is very impressive, and I have a lot of respect for people who do that. Well, and, and not even, I mean, we're talking about notation, but you talk, uh, the the English, I know if it's not a lot of it, it would be in English maybe, but the English of six or 700 years ago is, would, would be unidentifiable as English to most speakers today. Right. You have to, I mean, people, I, you know, people who do medieval music have to learn all the medieval languages, or at least to pronounce them and understand them. Obviously, you don't need to, you know, speak them with each other, but of course, you know, English has gone through, there's Old English, there's Middle English, has gone through a lot of changes. French has gone through a lot of changes. There's a lot of medieval French music. And of course, um, of course, then there are dialectical differences because you're talking about a time before languages were standardized in a certain country. And um, that's, again, why it's, why it's for really medieval music, that is really a scholarly, um, a scholarly field, even for the performer. And what about Latin? Is Latin a, a common, I guess for church music, you would think, but is Latin a common thing sure. in the medieval? Sure, of course, of course. Church music is is generally in Latin, and most of it, you know, most church music has been in Latin for most of the time in most countries. Let's put it that way. Right. So, sure. And and so then we go, like you mentioned earlier, your interest in in early music and in choral music. We go from from many many centuries ago, and then we jump to. Uh, yeah, to twentieth century avant garde Dadaist kind of. Um, what are the the similarities and differences? And I mean, how does how does a performer in in one not just a headspace, but kind of in one era? What does it take to kind of jump between those performance wise? Well, I think the difference between working with very early music or even sort of early music like baroque music and working with new music is a smaller difference than say if you're an opera singer at a normal opera house and you do new music or or early music 
because going back to you know what we just said the um this sort of scholarly aspect the being you know analyzing things like notation well for medieval music or early renaissance music you have to understand this this uh, this different system of notation well a lot of composers these days write in very special notation and some of them sort of invent their own notation or do sort of extended right. notation so you need to have the kind of mindset to to deal with that and in terms of just vocally i noticed that you know just with my colleagues there's a big overlap at least here in germany between people who specialize in early music and people who specialize in new music and i think that has to do partly with the vocal quality that's um that is i, I don't know required or that people people want to hear this sort of the ability to sing without vibrato the ability right. to have a wide range of different tone colors to be able to sing in a way that is not necessarily beautiful in certain things to have a sort of tone color you know have a have a large palette of of different sounds and you get that in baroque music a lot that's very useful and necessary to have and in new music so it tends to be kind of the same people or there's a large overlap in that interesting um, and i find that the that the, the same kind of techniques and the same kind of approach to the music often works with earlier and with um, modern music and and what was it like coming into the the lab of its piece how did how did you get involved um with with that project well, that was a group that I um, that I have sung with a lot. I sang with them for about ten years. Uh, they're called the Schola Heidelberg, and it's a vocal ensemble, a one person to a part um, vocal ensemble for new vocal music. And they have an instrumental ensemble that's called Ensemble Aesthesis. Oh, right. And, you know, the, the, right, and the the recording was um, the Schola Heidelberg and the Ensemble Aesthesis and some solo pieces, and. Um, the the this specific piece, the explanation of metaphors, that was the project of Walter Nussbaum, who was the director of the group, and um, Mark, who was the, um, the the pianist who oh yes right who really who really was interested in in live was really interested in this piece, and they found that the piece exists in two versions. There's the earlier version, which is in French. And there's the later version, which is in English, because Leibovitz um, went to America. And he kind of redid the piece in English. And honestly, I assume that it was just a matter of they didn't know, they didn't happen to know a French-speaking singer who, you know, worked with the group a lot, but they happened to know an English-speaking singer who worked <laughs> right. with the group a lot. You know, that's how these things often work. And they asked me if I was interested, and I said, sure, of course, you know, I'll look at it. Um, and for me, it was fascinating because that was the first time I had really worked with Sprechgesang, with this really right. spoken, right. spoken singing that was, you know, done at that time, early, early, middle 20th century. Um, so I had to kind of start at the beginning and really also just read a lot of, you know, theoretical stuff and, and listen to you know, Schoenberg and listen to all the pieces that had come before and try to just understand first mentally and then vocally how do you make this technique work? Well, it works really well. <laughs> well thank you. I've, I worked very hard on it. <laughs> I'm glad I would it imagine so. Well. It's it's this uh, it's two pianos, harp 
and percussion, is that correct? And then, and then you. Yes. Yes. What was it like to work with that text, the, the Raymond, the, the Cano poetry? Um, cause it's kind of very surrealist. Yes. <laughs> I, so. I love, I love the poem and I first just, I mean, just working on the text, just, just read the text as a, as a poem, read it in, in French. I mean, French is the original, of course, and then read it in English. This is live of its own translation into English, which is why the English version is maybe even a little bit more surreal than the French text. Sure. Um, so, you know, learned, learned that. And then, I mean, this is the approach I take to every music. It can be Bach, it can be Leibovitz, it can be anyone. You, you understand the text and then you see, well, how is the composer making this text work in the music? You know, what kind of, how do text and music intertwine? And the Leibovitz, there's, um, there's so much opportunity for, for tone painting in the words, because there are great, there are such great words. And yes. there are these phrases like, slender as is a hair, ample as is the dawn. And he writes the slender on a very high note, and this ample very low. And there's so much you can just, there's so much you can do with that with the voice. And that made it fun. Um, just, just looking for the, the places where, where text, music, instruments, where that all kind of came together to paint a very visual picture. I find it a very visual piece as well. Yes. And we worked a lot on that in the rehearsals too. Is it, is it, was it challenging from a musical standpoint? Um, I understand it to be, I assume as, as a live of its piece to be 12 tone. And so do you, do you have to have perfect pitch to kind of get around all of what he's written? I understand some of the pitches like you, you mentioned to me before were not exact, right? Right. Well, for, okay, I don't have perfect pitch, but this is one of the pieces where it would help if one had perfect <laughs> pitch because it is 12 tone and you, with the way the 12 tone row, you know, works in the different instruments and the voice, sometimes there's a little phrase where sometimes we're unisono. Sometimes I have a phrase and then it's immediately repeated in an instrument. And sometimes the instrument has it first and then me, and you really hear, or sometimes we have the, the piece of a row coming from two directions and land on the same note of all these, all these 12 tone things. So you notice if the, you know, if, if my intonation oh, yeah. isn't good, you would notice it. You would notice it right away. Um, and the thing about the exact pitches is, of course, working with Sprechgesang, that was the vocal challenge for me with this piece and with this whole technique, because singing a pitch is, you know, singing an exact pitch, even with, with atonal or 12-tone music, is not the most difficult thing. You just have to learn it and practice it. Right. But, of course, speaking on pitches that are outside of a normal speaking range is very difficult. And of course, it's not something you necessarily get trained in as a singer. So I had to kind of train myself for this piece. And I would work on just, you know, warming up. I'd warm up a normal, you know, normal scale or whatever, singing it, and then try to do the same scale or, you know, five notes or whatever, speaking it, really speaking on pitch, which is, difficult for two reasons. First of all, because of the pitch, it may be very high or, or very low, especially if it's very high, you kind of have to choose, okay, do I go into a sort of head voice? Do I use a sort of falsetto voice? Or do I try to speak that high, which doesn't really work, but then, you know, try to make a kind of speaking tone. 
that was one aspect. And also, if you notice, you listen to people speaking, you never hold the pitch. When right. The voice is always modulating. So you have to stay on the pitch, but but make it sound like you're speaking it and not singing it. Because, of course, as soon as you start holding a pitch in whatever kind of vocal color you're using, it sounds it's like you're singing. So that was the approach from different sides that I took. And, in fact, in a lot of places, I, could, I can read you some of the notes that I wrote to myself here. And I have the piece in front of me. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Here, at the beginning. Is part, is, some of it is in English, some of it's in German. Dreamy, entspannt, entspannt is relaxed. Ungeordnet, ungeordnet is like, Disorderly, that's the beginning, that's far from time and from space. And then I have things here like rough, schwer, which means heavy, um, sanft, which is gentle, luft, air, like an airy voice. Like if you're talking like this, then I use oh, yes. this airy voice. Um, Barbie. Barbie was for the, the slender roses I have. It's very high, it was right. higher than I could ever speak. And, you know, using this kind of falsette voice that's very kind of, sort of mini Mouse. But it comes through perfectly. Um, well, that I had, you know, I wrote it, I, you can see, I wrote it all in the Barbie. music so I could, that I could call it up in that moment, you know, when it's, um, and, and we worked on, you know, we worked on it with, with Walter Nussbaum and with the, with the uh, instrumentalist. We, we rehearsed it a lot, you know, we did, and we did two concerts of it before we did the recording. So oh, wow. Okay. We had a good good basis for it going into the recording, which was very important. And, and so I understand from, from reading the, the absolutely wonderful uh, program notes or the, the notes in the, in the booklet of this, um, uh, of this box, that this piece had been performed before. Like, um, obviously this is not a world premiere performance um, in French. And then, like you said, when Live of It's moved to America, he had, was it an actress or a performer lady friend who he translated it for in English? But, but I would imagine that, I mean, you guys had never been in attendance for any of those performances, or did you have someone maybe who had heard it live before as a reference? Well, Mark Reichel, who was the, you know, the pianist who, who, you know, really got this project and specifically this piece really, um, he, he really worked on it a lot and did a lot of research for it. Um, he contacted, I believe it was the, daughter of the original performance it was a, a oh, relative right. of the original performer i believe um, yes did the original version of that and he talked to her so he got some some you know kind of in, in, in interpretation information from her and he really researched the piece a lot so like in the rehearsals if there was a question about something we would ask mark and he would usually know an answer that he had found out because he had really, um, he, he really worked on this piece and worked on, worked on the whole history of the piece and the performance history and the people who, who performed it. So and, we were and, very lucky that, that we had him. And, and speaking of new performance, um, there was an operetta recently. Yes. This was a lot of fun. <laughs> this was one month ago. This is it's, this September, 2016, an opera called Cabaret, an operetta called Cabaret Voltaire. And it's about the Cabaret Voltaire, you know, where in 1916 in Zurich, a bunch of artists who were, you know, either refugees from the war or kind of stranded in Zurich because of the war. Um, they decided to kind of open up a experimental, uh, you know, experimental performance cafe. And that was where the, the art movement that we know as Dada 
began. So, and there's a there's an ensemble in Munich called the Taschen Philharmonie, and it's run by a guy named Peter Stangel, and he uh, is also a composer. He's a composer and a conductor, and he wrote the music to it. And there was a librettist um, from there, Jürgen von Stenglen, who wrote a great libretto to it. And they wrote an operetta about the early Dada artists. Um, and I played Emmy Hennings, who was one of the one of the early Dada artists and one of the founders of the Cabaret Voltaire. And it was a lot of fun. It sounds like it. And and so that kind of a production, like like you said, you have you have the the composer, the conductor sitting there. Um, knowing very clearly what he wants. Um, how, how long did rehearsals go before the, I remember the, the performance was September 11th, right? We put this entire thing on stage in five days. Oh my goodness. Yes. <laughs> we, we rehearsed 10 hours a day. We, I mean, it was sort of semi-staged. It was not fully staged. Um, but it was, you know, it was, it was memorized and somewhat staged. There was sort of a narrator, like we didn't, a real operetta would have lots and lots and lots of spoken scenes and of course a whole like set and a chorus and all kinds of things. We had a, our set was kind of a backdrop of um, a collage artist made great like Dada collages just to oh, project wow. as a set. And we had sort costumes that were, you know, we each took things from our own closets that looked like they could be appropriate. So, I mean, not, not quite costumes, but kind of give an idea of sure. the character and time. And there was a, a narrator, who uh, kind of explained the the plot? So, so it was sort of semi staged but of course, of course, you know, you start getting ideas, and the director starts getting ideas, and then it ended up being pretty well staged for five days. So we, we worked on it very hard for a very short time. Five days, and so why why the five days? Was it like? We're, we're just getting the score completed on Tuesday and it goes on Saturday? No, no the, no, the score was ready. That was all, that was all very, very well done. Um, you know, we all got the, we all got the music very early and there weren't, you know, huge changes or anything. That was, that was no problem at all, but it's just, um, you know, it's just a matter of matter of, of, of time and budget and, you know, how much money do they have and where can they get a, you know, rehearsal space and sure. um, that sort of thing. So, uh, it's not like, you know, if you do something at an opera house, you have the people, you have the building, you have the right. people, they get a salary, you've got the orchestra, every, everybody's there. So you can, you know, you can rehearse things for four or five or six weeks before it goes up. That's, that's fine. But if you're doing a production, you know, kind of on the, like the independent scene, I mean, five days is still pretty extreme, but, uh, but yeah. other productions that I've done, you'd have maybe two weeks, you know, you have, it's a lot, it's a lot more compact than if you're working at an opera house. And and as an operetta, what what what's, what was the scale of of the piece from the standpoint of the orchestra, from the standpoint of um of the length of the work? Well, the Taschen Philharmonie is a is a chamber orchestra. They're um, they're also you know kind of basically one to a part. I think there were twelve or maybe thirteen uh, people in all, so you know very small. And is that actually and... pocket philharmonic? Is that what it yes, is? Yes, it is. It's <laughs> pocket That's what it is. That's adorable. I love that. Yes, yes. It was a fantastic group. It was great to work with them. And we were nine people on stage singing. So, so one part was only spoken, and the other parts were singing and speaking. We had the narrators who were nine people. Um, so it was it was really sort of pocket production. You know, it was not a huge cast of thousands. Sure. Uh, it, it's it's really an operetta. What what I find so charming is it's it's not in terms of the musical composition. It's it's more operetta than Dada. It's not 
really kind of new music. It's he's not trying to be experimental in the music writing itself. Right. But he's drawing on this kind of operetta tradition and also kind of musical theater tradition and then kind of tweaking it a little bit. Like he kept the, the director, the composer, he kept saying, This is not a Dada opera, it's an opera about, about Dada. Yeah. So that people would not expect, you know, extremely experimental music. But I thought the music was extremely clever because most of the pieces, they sound like kind of operetta music, like, you know, you've got this you know, sweet little melody and, you know, you start tapping your foot and then you tapping your foot. And you, Wait a minute. I can, why can't I tap? Oh, yeah, I can't tap my foot because this piece is in 11-8, oh, you know? Right, right, right. <laughs> a lot of playing with rhythm and playing with harmonies in ways that you wouldn't expect. And so there was a little bit of data creeping in like that. It made it very clever and very, uh, very cute. Well, fantastic. And and how was it? Um, how was the response? That was the world premiere. It was. We had a huge audience. I think there were eight hundred people there. They invited wow. everybody, impressed everyone, and they loved it. And you know, we didn't know. We, we thought, well, this is this is what it is. And there was a good. Um, they were very good about press announcements beforehand, and the composer was on all the radio and everything, and, and explaining this. So we got a really good audience, and they really understood it. Like they really. They, they understood the jokes. They understood the the point of kind of reviving reviving the whole genre of operetta. Because when you think operetta, you think, oh, okay, uh, whatever, 100 years ago, you know, people wearing frilly skirts, you know, right. dancing around and singing stupid love songs, you know. <laughs> sure. I have to say, I'm, I'm not generally a big fan of kind of classical operetta because it is – it is kind of a bit silly, you know, let's be honest. So, right, right. And, and, you know, Peter Stangler's idea was, okay, let's take this genre, which, which has so much uh, potential. And actually, in fact, the old operettas, I think, you know, depending on the interpretation, you can, you can pull a lot more out of them than, than are actually in them, or maybe that's conventionally done. You know, let's take this idea and let's take these operetta cliches of, you know, the, the, you know, the, the star-crossed lovers and the right. whatever. And let's, let's make it modern and let's make it let's make it kind of intelligent intelligent humor and 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 modern something that you can that you can do today and the, you know so maybe we don't need to do the operettas that are the older operettas we can we can have a genre that's that's new and old so that appealed to me very much and i think that was very successful and the audience understood that too and they really liked it i'd love to to hear what you're describing and to see what you're describing but um it's a very you know, you had to be there, I guess. Well, we did record it. We did record Ooh, it. it was wonderful. Recorded, uh, it was recorded audio and video. Fantastic. So, and if, because, of course, we went through so much, you know, so much effort. And the composer and the British and everybody did so much work. It would be a pity if that were the only performance yeah. of it ever. So, you know, it was recorded and hopefully... Very good. The kind of production that would work very well as a guest production um, in all kinds of all kinds of theaters and festivals and things. So I hope that's not the last time that the world will, will hear of our Cabaret Voltaire. Well, fantastic. And and do you have any exciting new projects coming up that we should know about? Well, one funny development that's kind of happened in the last couple of years uh, with me is singing like Brecht, you know, like Bertolt Brecht, um, like kind of moving in the direction of like chanson and not, you know, not, not, no, not only classical music um, that started here at the, the Arbeitnehmerkammer, which is like, 
put it how do you say that in English? The Abenema Kama is like the employees, like the state organization for employees. They do like legal help okay, and stuff uh-huh. for everybody who's an employee. But interestingly enough, the Abenema Kama in Bremen has a fantastic cultural program where they do fantastic, they do concerts, they do all kinds of stuff. I, just because there's a guy who's running that who's really, really good and really interested and, and you know, has a lot of ideas and does stuff. And he started doing a series of concerts with, with Bertolt Brecht and with, with the readings and songs by Bertolt Brecht. And he asked me and I thought, well, okay, I've never really sung anything by Brecht. I don't know if that's my style, but hey, you know, if you want to work with me, I'm happy to try it out. And that was a few years ago and it's kind of really, really blossomed. So I have one program of Brecht next week oh, wow. with a, a piano player and a guitarist doing kind of more more like the classical music like Paul Dessau and Hans Eisler like the, right. the songs that are not quite like the Kurt Weill songs but a little kind of more more classical music than that and then we're doing a longer version of that program in February also here in Bremen with you know more more pieces and uh, and readings and things so that's been something that's uh, that I hadn't expected that just kind of like kind a... of developed over time and I'm really enjoying it Another coincidence, another chapter in um, finding something new. Yeah, well, I think that's, <laughs> you know, that's that's part of, I guess, I don't know how you want to say it, the artistic life is just being open to, to opportunities that, that show up, saying, well, okay, is that is that something I can do? I don't know. I've never done it. Well, I'll try it. You know, maybe it'll suit me. Maybe it'll suit my voice. Maybe not. But you have to try it and see, just see where it goes. And to that, one one last question. Um, people read about, for example, composers who, you know, were grow up, who grow up in an environment where musical talent and interest like Mozart was cultivated. And, and there's that, you know, whole nature nurture argument, whatever. But do you think that you were just in the right place at the right time a lot, or that this was something that you were bound to do? I was in the right place at the right time. It was pure luck and coincidence that, uh, that every every time that I was at a point where I kind of didn't know what to do with myself, whether it's, you know, going off to college for the first time and kind of, you know, for the first time figuring out, okay, what am I going to do with my life or being done with college and thinking, well, what now? Or, you know, being in New York and thinking, well, I really do want to get a proper music degree, but I don't know where. And then just meeting the person, being in the right place, having somebody say, well, I, you know, Bremen is really nice and, um, and I can give you a recommendation. The weather's terrible, but they have a, a great music school. And, um, you know, if, if you need help applying, I can help you with the application. Well, okay. You know, when I moved to New York, it was because I had met some people at a, a music workshop, early music workshop. And one of them said, well, if you're looking for a place to move, um, I have an apartment in New York that I sublet and my subletter is moving out and at my church job, they're looking for an alto. So, you know, you could do that. And, uh, and then the, the, wow. the, the boss of this, uh, of, of this early music festival that was at the workshop festival, she said, Oh, and I need somebody to work in the office for me, you know, midday. So if you came to New York, you get, okay, well, obviously the choice was made. Right. And so many things just happen like that. I mean, even, even here now that I'm sort of, I don't know, established, in Bremen, having been here for almost 20 years, you know, things like the Brechtlied or the Arbeitnehmerkammer, someone says, hey, Julie, why don't you give this a try? So, okay, give it a try. It's really, this whole this whole life and being successful in music, part of it, of course, is being good at what you're doing. Right. Part of it is, 
you know, working hard and being disciplined and, and, you know, cultivating a professionalism. And part of it is just sheer luck. And that is really all the time we have for today. I was going to try to make this a little bit shorter so that all the good stuff and the main points were kind of stuck in there, but there was nothing really that I could manage or bear to cut out. So that's the whole conversation that I had with Julie Comparini. Find her uh, on her website and then find me at www.fugforthought.de. I have it written in the credits somewhere, but I want to say that our intro music is Albenberg's Four Pieces for Clarinet and Piano, the very beginning of that piece performed by Carol McGonnell on clarinet and Stephen Beck on piano. Uh, it's a Creative Commons license. It's available online, um, but I do believe that they should get credit vocally rather than just in liner notes somewhere. So that's our intro music. That's the music we've been using since the beginning. Uh, that's going to be it for today because we've had a long episode, so stay tuned for some very exciting stuff in the future. Bye-bye.